You're listening to the sermon audio for English Ministries at Tri-City Chinese Christian Church. We meet on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. at the Kyle Center in Port Moody, British Columbia. All right, so we are starting a new series, which is the Kingdom of God. And what we're going to be doing in the series, we're going to look uh, at a lot of the areas in the Gospel of Matthew in particular, where Jesus speaks about the Kingdom of Heaven, is what it's called in Matthew. Uh, the other Gospels, uh, Mark, Luke, John, all use Kingdom of God uh, in, their, um, in their Gospels. Uh, it means the same thing, the terms. Matthew chooses to use Kingdom of Heaven because his Gospel is written to a Jewish audience uh, who has an idea of what heaven means in that Jewish context that he's writing to. Matthew, or Mark, uh, Luke, and John are writing to primarily Gentile or non-Jewish audiences uh, with maybe some Jewish people mixed in there, but because they're primarily Gentile, they don't have the same concept or context of what heaven means as the Jewish people do, so they switch it to kingdom of God. And that's the difference between the two terms, just the audience that he is writing to. And you notice throughout the book of Matthew as well, Matthew uh, quotes directly from a lot of Old Testament scriptures, um, saying this, Jesus did this to fulfill the prophecy as it says in the scriptures, and we'll read the thing. Whereas Mark, Luke, John don't do that as much because they're writing to audiences that don't have the same familiarity with the Old Testament as the Jewish people do. Um, so there's some context for the Gospel of Matthew itself. Uh, this morning we are going to look at Jesus' preparation for his ministry and his first recorded sermon in um, the Gospel of Matthew. So you can open in your Bible apps if you so desire uh, to Matthew 4. Uh, it will also be on the screen. Uh, it's going to be Matthew 4 verses 1 to 22 that we'll be reading and I'm reading from the TNIV, as I always do. Um, and just before chapter 4, um, Ken has read it for us twice, once in the responsive reading and once in the scripture just before, is Jesus' baptism. So Jesus comes to his cousin John the Baptist to be baptized, and as he is baptized, he comes up out of the water and he hears uh, this voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's the ESV version of it. <laughs> uh, NIV is what we read earlier. But this idea that this is my son who I love. And this is before Jesus does anything in his ministry. He spent the last 30 years working as a carpenter under his father, uh, his earthly father, Joseph. And so before he's preached a sermon, before he's preached, uh, preached a sermon, done a miracle, any of that kind of stuff, he gets baptized and he hears his voice. He is called beloved before he does anything um, in the religious way or anything in his ministry, which is also just a, a great message. And I know something that I need a reminder of for myself as well is that before we do anything, we are called beloved by God. You're already considered a child of God before you have done anything in service before him. And we see that with Jesus himself as well. Before he does any ministry, he is called the beloved Son of God. And then it comes into our passage. <clears throat> As I choke on some saliva before I go in. <clears throat> then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, 
tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and said to him, uh, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in splendor. All this I will give you, oh, he said, um, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light, and those living in the land of, shadow, of the shadow of death a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So after being baptized and hearing the voice of the Father, Jesus is led into the wilderness. And Jesus' time in the wilderness serves two, uh, well, a couple of functions. We'll talk about two of them. Uh, the first is he's identifying himself with the people of Israel. And the second is having received now the commission uh, and the words of being the beloved son from the Father, Jesus is now in the wilderness to work out what kind of son of God or what kind of Messiah he's going to be and how he's going to go about his ministry on the earth. So, first he's identifying himself with Israel. On the wilderness, sequence is filled with Old Testament imagery. And it's emphasizing that Jesus is this new Israel. Israel is the chosen people of God in the Old Testament. Chosen to display what proper relationship with God, proper relationship with each other, and proper relationship with creation is to look like. And through that way of living, attract all the other nations into relationship with God and under the law of God, be in proper relationship with God, with each other, and creation as well. But Israel fails to do so. Um, and they start becoming greedy and start looking a lot more like the other nations around them instead of the nation that God formed them to be. And the signs that Israel wasn't going to be able to hold on to this commission and be faithful to that commission very well is seen throughout their time in the wilderness itself. They come to the edge of the promised land after, being, after the exodus and Moses leads them out of Israel. They go to Mount Sinai, they receive the covenant and the law. And then finally they come to the edge of the promised land and they hear a report of how big the people are and how tall the city walls are. And they grow afraid and decide they don't want to go into the promised land. And so because they rejected this and didn't trust that God was going to guide them through it, God says, you are going to wander in the wilderness until this generation that's rejected the promised land dies out. And then the new generation will come in and take over the promised land. And so they end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And then here we see Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days 40 40 very intentional to make that connection there deuteronomy uh, which speaks to this next generation so you have the pentateuch which is the first five books of the bible genesis exodus uh, leviticus numbers and deuteronomy 
Uh, Deuteronomy is uh, basically a retelling of the law code that's received throughout the Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers to the new generation. They're on the edge of the land, about to cross into the promised land, and Deuteronomy is kind of a summary of everything to this new generation teaching them. And Deuteronomy interprets this wandering of 40 years of Israel like this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands. So now Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested to see whether or not he would keep the Father's commands where Israel has failed. And each of these temptations uh, line up with kind of those temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. In each of these temptations, Jesus answers Satan with uh, scripture. And uh, commentator Leon Morris points out that every scripture that Jesus uses uh, comes from Deuteronomy and references temptations that Israel faced when they were wandering in the wilderness. So the first temptation is to turn the stones uh, into bread and break his fast. And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 in response, and this is what it says in its entirety. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Israel fails to trust God throughout their history. And the wilderness uh, episode, saga, <laughs> that they're in, the example, one of the examples of this is they're grumbling about food. They accuse God of leading them into the wilderness to have them starve to death out there. Um, and this grumbling is answered by manna, this bread that appears on the ground in the morning every day. But even with this manna that was miraculously provided for them every day, they still grumbled about food because then they wanted meat. And then God makes quails come in and they eat so much quail that they get sick and some people die. Um, and all these things about food that they're uh, complaining with. The also the thing with manna was that God told them to just collect enough that they needed for that day, trusting that God was going to provide them enough manna the next day as well. And if they did decide to try to hoard and take extra manna, they would find that it would be moldy the next day. And despite all this command and this warning by God, the very first time manna appears, a bunch of them gather too much manna to save it for the next day. They wake up the next morning, they find that that manna is rotten, but there is more manna on the ground. Again, they're failing to trust God at his word. And so now here's Jesus quotes the scripture referring to that manna and uses it to resist the devil's temptation to turn stone into bread. He is successful where Israel was uh, not successful. The second temptation was for Jesus to throw himself off the highest point of the temple and have the angels catch him and bring him safely to the ground. And here the devil himself references scripture going with Psalm 91, 11, to 12, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus responds with scripture of his own coming from Deuteronomy 6, 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And Massa, it means testing. And Massa is the place where Israel grumbles uh, about a lack of water in the wilderness. They say to Moses, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? So God tells Moses to strike a rock, and as he strikes the rock with his staff, water comes out for them to drink. And it then says that Moses called the place Massa and Meribah, 
because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here we see Jesus refused to put God to the test, where Israel in the water saga puts God to the test. So again, Israel failed in that respect in the wilderness. Here, Jesus is success, successful against that temptation. The third temptation is for Jesus to bow down before Satan and in return be given all the kingdoms of the earth. In response, uh, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. And then verse 14 continues as, Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. This is probably a reference to the golden calf episode in the wilderness where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law. And uh, as he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, uh, there's that number again, um, the Israelites grow anxious and they decide to make a calf out of their golden ears to bow down and worship. And the inspiration for this being the image of a calf would come from the surrounding nations. Many of the ancient Near Eastern uh, idols during that time were figures with the head of a bull and the body of a man, or would be calves themselves, um, just representing power and fertility for them. And those were the things that they would worship. And so that's where they're getting this inspiration from. So here we see Jesus refuses to bow down and worship something other than God, again, succeeding where Israel failed in the wilderness. So with this, the devil leaves him, and Jesus comes out of the wilderness now as the successful Israel, the successful chosen of God. And so we see this is a validation of his being the Messiah. The other function of Jesus' time in the wilderness, I have two of the same slide, uh, is what kind of Messiah is he going to be? In the book of Philippians, Paul uh, tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Here, Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's in the process of working out how he's going to bring salvation and what that nature of the salvation is going to be. Uh, Leon Morris puts it like this. At the baptism, it was made clear that Jesus would be serving God in a special way with a special mission. But what did that mean? How would he go about that mission? The temptation was apparently the process that cleared that up. So in this kind of, what kind of Messiah is going to be? Uh, Donald Crable in this book, Upside Down Kingdom, he really focuses on the story of the temptation uh, and this kind of aspect of Jesus working out what kind of Messiah he's going to be. So he reverses the order uh, of the temptations and he says this, the temptation points to the right-side-up kingdom. So Jesus is bringing an upside-down kingdom, something that looks different from the rest of the world. So the right-side-up kingdom, uh, encompassing the three big social institutions of his day. The political institution, which is represented by the temptation on the mountain to bow down before Satan. The religious, which is the, at the temple and throwing himself off. And the economic, which is turning stones into bread. So we'll look at these three aspects. Uh, not so much using political and economic terms because I, I, I'm going to say those are boring, but probably for some of you, they're not boring. <laughs> you might like those things, but for me, they're not. Anyways, in all three temptations, the devil is trying to get Jesus to take the easy way out. But Jesus ultimately is going to take the path of suffering on behalf of humanity. So the temptation of bread is for Jesus to take up this mantle that uh, Donald Craveville calls the welfare king. Feeding the people would be the easiest way to 
their hearts. You have all said you love food. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to your hearts is to feed you, right? Uh, it's the same for uh, Israel then. When the vast majority of people are poor, you can feed them the fastest way to their hearts. If Jesus is able to feed the poor through his miracles, then he would be able to easily convince them to rise up as a rebellion and overthrow Rome. And we see this almost come to pass in John's account of one of Jesus' miraculous feedings, in the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus multiplies five loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a meal that satisfies 5,000 men. John says at the end of his account, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus' feeding here is motivated by compassion, and that's why he feeds the people. Here, Satan's tempting him to feed people to get power, and it would have worked because the people wanted to make him king by force in John's gospel. So by feeding the people through miraculous means, they wanted to make him king, and not just make him king, but force him to be king. And this is the temptation that is laid before him. No need to suffer and die. Just feed the people, and they will make you their king. But Jesus refuses to be that kind of Messiah. The temptation of jumping off the temple is the temptation to be supported by the powerful of religion. The temple was the center not just of the Jewish faith, but of their identity. The Sanhedrin, who was the council of religious leaders, and the most powerful group of Jews, met at the temple. So if Jesus was to jump off the top of the temple and be caught by angels as he touched down, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite, could not deny that he was the Messiah with such a powerful miracle. Uh, Donald Craigle says this, A miraculous appearance, a sudden bolt from heaven, would certainly convince even the most skeptical Sadducee of Jesus' divine authority. And so the devil offered Jesus an attractive option. Why not miraculously certify your mission? This would eliminate any harassment by the religious leaders. It's the offer of an easy way out. You don't have to suffer and die. Just perform this undeniable miracle in front of the powerful, and they will support you. And they will give their, their allegiance to you, and their power will be your power. But Jesus refuses to do this. And in the end, the religious leaders are the ones that uh, end up getting him crucified with their complaints and convincing of the Roman government and of the people to crucify Jesus. The final temptation to be giving the kingdoms of the world was the promise that God had already given Jesus, but he was again offered the easier path to it. It was to have an earthly kingdom overthrowing the shackles of Rome and making Israel the dominant nation in the world again with Jesus as king. And it's a path that many kings took. Israel was well familiar with this path. Assyria is one of the first empires in the world, and they conquered Israel. Then Babylon came and conquered Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and set up an even bigger empire. And then Persia came and took over um, the other one, Babylon, <laughs> uh, took over Babylon with Israel being passed into custody of Persia. And then Greece came and became even bigger than Persia. And then finally Rome has come and taken over Greece all through conquering and violence to uh, get these lands. And it's a path that many self-proclaimed messiahs in, within Judaism would take 
as well, and a group that Jesus would have been very familiar with because they happened just, I think, like 40 years before he came, was the Maccabees, um, a family that's able to overthrow the shackles, uh, the occupation of the Seleucids, who kind of were right in between the Greece and Rome that conquered the area for a short period of time. Um, they were able to throw off this nation. Um, they raised this rebellion, they captured the temple, and then eventually captured Jerusalem itself. And the Maccabees, who were this family, uh, ruled Jerusalem for that time. Um, and their capturing and the purifying of this temple is what Hanukkah celebrates every year, uh, is this Maccabean revolt, uh, where they purified the temple for a short period of time. They did it through violence and conquering and fighting uh, the Seleucid armies. Shortly after Jesus, a man named Simon, who uh, this rabbi dubbed Bar Kokhba, or son of the star, and that's referring to the prophecy of the morning star that we have for Christmas over um, the manger. Um, is, he puts it as this guy named Simon, who reads a rebellion about a century after Jesus. Uh, and he also is able to give a very small portion of Israel uh, independence from Rome for a very brief period of time until Rome just comes in and crushes everyone. But again, he was proclaiming to be the Messiah, and an influential rabbi was claiming him to be Messiah until the rebellion was crushed. So here, the devil is offering Jesus a similar route. Uh, by worshiping the devil, he could become king of the world, no need to die and suffer. Instead, he's going to come he's going to conquer it. So throughout this temptation story, we see glimpses of how the devil goes about trying to tempt us. He gives promises that are similar to God's promises, but the means towards them aren't God's will. He even uses scripture to try to convince, twisting it to suit his purposes, as we saw as in quotation of Psalm in the um, second temptation. And the common message throughout the temptation story is summarized by this guy named F.V. Well, his initials are F.V. Wilson. Serve the devil and rule the world. In modern terms, be practical, realistic, ready to compromise. The ends justify the means. To help people, you must get position and power. And it really comes down to power. Joshua Yip, a scholar, says, Satan's test of Jesus attempts to convince him to use power and authority in exactly the same self-serving way as do other tyrannical characters who dot the landscape of the Gospels. But Jesus rejects this way, the way that obsesses over power and wielding it for one's own gain. Instead, he chooses the way of servitude. There's a lot of quotations in this one. I think this is my last quotation. <laughs> and to your right, it says this, Jesus believed that his contemporaries were going in the wrong direction. They were bent on revolution of the standard kind, military resistance to occupying forces, leading to a takeover of power. Part of the underlying theme of his temptations in the wilderness was the suggestion, suggestion that he should use his own status as God's Messiah to launch some kind of movement that would sweep him to power, privilege, and glory. So the, the problem is not power itself, because Jesus had power. He was male which came with its own set of power that women didn't have during that time and some women still don't do, don't have today. He was followed by people who called him rabbi, which is a position of religious power uh, as well. And of course, he's the son of God who can perform miracles. That's a lot of power that he has there as well. 
So the problem's not having power, it's about obsessing over power and how you use that power. Seeking power to serve oneself just leads to seeking more and more of that power, and often at the cost of other people. And this is what the religious leaders sought, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, each sought power in that way, different ways of going about it, but for themselves, um, not necessarily to uplift others. It's what King Herod sought, it's what Caesar sought, but Jesus instead use, chooses to use the power he has to uplift others, to bring them into places of power for themselves rather than trying to take their power. So the challenge for us is to learn about and to acknowledge the power that each of us have um, and consider the ways in which we're using it. Are we using our power just for our own benefit or are we seeking to use our power to lift others up and to serve them? So Jesus comes out of the wilderness and goes not to the center of power in his region, in Jerusalem, but he actually goes to the fringes, into Galilee, where all the poor farmers are living. And it's there that he preaches his first sermon, which is a much shorter sermon than this one is. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near, and it doesn't look like any of the kingdoms that other people are trying to set up. It's not a kingdom trying to manipulate people through things like food. It's not a kingdom seeking to ally with those who have power and use their power to support their own. And it's not a kingdom brought through violence and conquering. Instead, it comes to the Son of God who reveals just what this kingdom looks like throughout his teachings and what we will dig into more as we go into this series.